And so you almost picture them picking up a, a club or something as they leave their, their boats going to, to do this thing. But Jesus, as he begins his public ministry, starts to, to bring them uh, together and say, hey, let me, let me reorient your thinking about what this kingdom is going to be like. And actually, let me teach you what kingdom life is all about. And that's, what the ser- that's where the summer sermon comes into play. He calls the disciples to himself, and he begins to, to restructure their thinking about what his kingdom is supposed to be like and what it's supposed to be about. And last week, we looked at the traits that he lists in chapter 5 and the first few verses of what the life of a disciple is supposed to look like what this, uh, the character of a disciple is. And we talked about it's not like Peter tended to be. It's not a triumphant type of, I can do this. You know, I'll put it, put it on my back and I'll, I'll, I'll get this thing through. I can do this on my own strength and my own gifts and abilities. He actually starts off in the Beatitudes saying, no, no, no. Blessed are you if, if you're poor in spirit, if you know your spiritual need and know that you don't have it all together. That's the good starting point for a disciple. But he also addresses the fears of disciples like, like Thomas would have been later on in, in Jesus' ministry. One who doubts, one who has struggled to, to believe that, Jesus, we don't know the, how, the way. How are we going to do this? We can't do this on our own. And Jesus says, you're right. You can't do it on your own, but you can do it because of me. Because I'm working these things in you. Because I'm working in you and through you. So we talked about a little bit last week with this character of the disciple of the fact that we're poor in spirit, uh, they're, they're those who mourn, those who are meek. And out of that meekness, out of that poverty of spirit, over that hatred of sin, he makes us people that are merciful and that are single-minded, pure in heart, and that are peacemakers, that seek to bring about God's peace in the relationships that we have on this earth. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing that God works in the disciples, those who are following after him. This week... In the verses that follow, we want to look at the, another question that may have needed to be a, something that was needed to be reoriented about the disciples' thinking. And that's the question of, okay, Jesus, you're here. Messiah is here. Let's bring the kingdom. Let's see this thing come. Let's overthrow Rome. But what they were going to soon find out was that although Jesus had come, this long-awaited Savior and Messiah had come, um, this kingdom was not going to be completed until he comes again. If you know or have Jewish friends, the big difference in understanding of Scripture between those who are from, from a Jewish background and those who call themselves by the name of Christ, Christians, is the understanding of, of how many times Messiah is coming. The Jews believe he was coming once. He's going to come once and he's going to bring kingdom in full and it's, it's all going to be done. Well, Christians believe, the Bible teaches, that actually his kingdom comes in two stages. First, Jesus comes and wins the victory, but he's coming again to complete the work that he started. So that's what Jesus sets about to teach them here when he talks about why the delay? What's going to happen in the in-between? I'm I'm here, but I'm coming again to complete the work. And what happens in between? So let's read it in Matthew 5. Hopefully that's not too much introduction, but just to give us some orientation, and then we'll, we'll kind of um, pull out what Jesus describes as the results of the life of a disciple today. From chapter 5, starting in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. What results of the life of a disciple do we see Jesus giving here? There's, there's four of them, and there may not be what the disciples would have expected, and they may not be what we would expect as we think about the results of a life lived for the Lord, following after the Lord. They are persecution, salt, light, and praise. And I want to hit on each one of them briefly. But the first one is probably the most jarring. Jesus says, if, if you follow after me, if you are a disciple, if you're living for the kingdom, then the first thing you can expect as a result of that life is persecution. Persecution. I think one of the most dangerous and devastating um, half-truths that the Christian church has put forth in the last few decades to in front of the world is, is the half-truth that before Jesus, my life was terrible, and now that I know Jesus, my life is going to be great. And I say half-truth because there is some truth there, that before Christ my life had no meaning, it had no purpose, I had no fulfillment. And now that I know Christ, we can live what the scripture describes as the abundant life. But it's a half-truth because if we don't fill in the other half of that, that picture, then we, we lead people to, to a devastating end, a devastating misunderstanding. And the other half of that is the abundant life doesn't mean life free from pain. It doesn't mean a life free from persecution. It actually may mean more pain, more persecution, more suffering than if we'd never named the name of Jesus. Um, Jesus says here, if you live for me, if you are, are seeking after the kingdom and, and my righteousness, then you can expect persecution. There are three types of suffering that you find in the scriptures. There's the suffering for your own sin. You've done something boneheaded that you knew you shouldn't have done, and now you're reaping the consequences for that sin. Now, that is suffering that we bring on ourselves. Then there's the kind of suffering that we've really, in and of ourselves, done nothing directly responsible for what's happening to us. Maybe we found out that we got the diagnosis of cancer or uh, you know, the loss of a child or something tragic, terrible suffering. There's no, no result necessarily of something that we've necessarily done, but it's just living in a world that's that's full of sin, that's, that's devastated by the effects of sin. And then there's a third type of suffering that we don't think about a whole lot, but it's the, it's the suffering that we, in effect, sign up for. You see it a lot in Paul's writings where he calls, let me read real quick, uh, Philippians 2 describes it like this, or Philippians 1, 27 and 28. He says, uh, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He said, listen, it's been granted to you this privilege to believe in Jesus. 
which we all are like, yes, we get to believe in Jesus. Thank you for, for doing that in us. But we don't, we don't grant it a privilege a lot of times to say and, and to suffer for his sake. And what Paul is saying is, hey, that's something that, that is a privilege for you to sign up for, to you put yourself in places that are going to bring about suffering and persecution because you named the name of Jesus. Uh, in other passages, in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about it in, in, as well. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So he says there, he hints at, and, and the rest of the letter to the 2 Corinthians kind of fills it out, that we get to, in essence, put ourselves in places that will bring suffering to some measure in our life, but God is using that to stretch us, to prepare us in some way, form or fashion, for an eternal weight of glory that will be ours uh, when the kingdom is restored completely. I picture it in the sense of a, a vessel, some sort of vessel that is made to hold the glory of God. And God's saying, hey, that's too small. I got, I got so much more glory that I want to bestow upon you. So let me stretch you out just a little bit. Let me pull a little bit here and a little bit there and make that vessel a little bit bigger to, to hold uh, my glory a little bit more, to experience a little bit more fullness that I have to offer you. That's the picture of what God is saying. That's what I'm doing in your suffering. From the time of my first coming to the time of my second coming, when I make all things complete and all things new, you're going to undergo persecution and suffering, and it's going to stretch you. And it's going to make you more like I, I want you to be and more like you will be when I come and complete the work that I've started. So Jesus says, blessed are you. Even though it may not feel blessed at the time, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. When it's something that you have put yourself in the place of for the kingdom of God, for Jesus and his sake, and you're persecuted because great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. First result of a life lived for the Lord is some measure of persecution. Secondly, second thing we can count on as a result of living life for the Lord is that we'll be salt. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt has two purposes. First, to preserve. Especially in, in, in biblical days, that was one of its main uses, to pr preserve uh, food and, and so it wouldn't go bad. But it's also to add flavor. And he, say, he hints to it there. How, how, shall, um, how shall its saltiness be? If it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So it's preservative, but it's also for taste. And that's what we're to be about as Christians. We're to, in, to do both of those. In one sense, to, to be preserving and many times I think about the preserving in the, the don't-dos of Scripture. Um, you know, don't be involved in this activity. Stay away from that thing or that person or this place or whatever it is. The, the don't-do, and in so preserve some measure of, of, of holiness, of righteousness in society. Don't just do what everybody else is doing. Don't just, uh, on a business trip, don't just go to the place that everybody else is going. Don't just do the things uh, with, with each other that others are doing. Um, don't, don't do the shaving of the numbers that you see in, in your, in, that others are doing in your business. Or like it was for me when I worked for Bank of America during seminary, 
uh, we had uh, we had at that branch we had to have a certain number of referrals each day uh, to meet our goals and our assistant manager if we were nearing the end of the day and we hadn't reached our goals she would try to get us as employees to sign up for checking accounts which we'd close two two or three days later just so she could meet our numbers and eventually the manager found out and she lost her job um, it was the pressure there to do what everybody else is doing uh, it's saying here hey no you're salt you do what's right and in so provide a preserving influence in society but the opposite is also true uh, so a lot of times I think Christians and churches are great at the teaching about at least the preserving side of things but we don't teach and we don't model and we don't actively pursue the adding flavor to society part of things when i was um in in school at mercer as a freshman that's what the lord used to draw me to himself was i had grown up in a background where i heard all about the don't do's and i was at the point in my life where i was like you know what i don't want to just live my whole life just not doing and just existing okay i won't do all these things i'll just make it through life not doing until one day i go be with jesus i thought there's got to be more to it than that and I, I met this group of believers that they weren't just not doing they were full of life and they were adding flavor to the campus of mercer they were excited about this jesus that had changed their lives and they were going about being involved in every aspect of campus life and wherever they went the party followed, not in a bad way, but in a good way. That's where life was, and it was flowing out of them because of what they had experienced with Jesus. I wrote this down. Think about it this way. Think about the flavor that flows from a, a relationship with Jesus. When you're justified by Jesus, meaning that you have a new record. Your record has been taken away, and you've got Jesus' record. So you are now, for the first time in your life, free to pursue unbelievable things and if you fail it's not held against you you've got a new record you've got freedom to go pursue things that you would have never in fear pursued before and in doing so you add flavor the flavor of life you've been regenerated you've been given a new heart your heart of stone has been taken out and you've been given a heart of flesh that beats for jesus and the things that he cares about so now you can care about significant hugely significant things and get involved in causes that you never would have even cared about in the past you have been adopted you've got a new relationship with your heavenly father there's no need anymore of his approval or of anybody else's approval because you've got it you've got the father's smile the father's approval so now you can you can go make hard decisions that aren't popular with everybody but that are right because you've got the Father's smile. You don't have to live for people's approval anymore. You can enter hard places that people look at you and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Because you've been adopted. You, you have the freedom to go enter these places because of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has, has also given us peace, a new standing, so then we can go be peacemakers. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased out of slavery to sin and self and into slavery to Jesus the great master, the, the good king. So your life is not your own anymore. You can go do things that in the world's eyes don't make any sense, that aren't prospering yourself any, because you're not your own anymore. And see, all of those things, because of what Jesus has done in us, it, it allows you to go do things with freedom and be salt and add flavor 
to the world, not just to preserve and don't do, but to be about doing things that are, are going to bring life. Jesus says, if you're a disciple of mine, you can expect persecution, but if you're living for me, you can also expect a salt influence of pre- preserving and adding flavor. He goes on, he says also, will be light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light or light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He says two things about us as light. He says, first of all, uh, it says you'll, you'll, you'll be on display. You'll be like a, a light in a dark room on a lampstand that gives light to all. It doesn't say you have to be a huge flame. It just says, hey, you're in a dark place, and when you light it up, no matter how big the flame is, it's going to fill the room with its light. Um, I was reading a blog post from a foster mom this week and was extremely convicted by it um, because the post was about the, the most, it was about the comment is the way it was, was titled. It says one of the, the most common comments that foster moms say they hear from others is the comment of, you know what, I just couldn't do that because I just, if, if I had them, I just couldn't give them back. And I've said that, and I've thought that in the past, and my guess is many of you have thought or said that in the past as well to foster moms. And well-meaning, but well-meaning so. But what she was saying in her blog post was by saying that what she hears and what she thinks and what she feels is, I can't do it either. <laughs> I, I, I can't take these kids and give them back, not in my own strength. It rips my heart out every time I have to do that. This is some of the things that she says. Do I still break down and have myself a good sobbing cry from time to time? Absolutely. Do I wish I'd never put myself in this position to miss a child so much that I can physically ache for them at times? And she says, not a chance. She said, I can't imagine my life without ever having a little monkey who called me mama, who danced to my horrific singing voice, who smiled ear to ear every time he lays eyes on me. I can't imagine a life without ever having a booger bear who begged to sleep with me every night because my bed was so much better than his, or who ran up to me at random times just to give me a hug, and to this day still tells me randomly, I love you. I can't imagine a life without all the memories of all the kids, even those who only stayed a few days and screamed the whole time. Um, She says, that's what I have to offer them, is that I keep them safe, I stand up for them, I feed them, I play with them, I make them smile, I kiss their boo-boos, I put them in comfy beds, and it's my honor to do it. She says, do you, another one says, do you think I felt like I, I could give my first daughter back to her mom without dealing with the grief of it for the rest of my life? She says, I can't do it. I just do it because it's either do it or go to jail. <laughs> so she, what they're saying is, listen, hard things that we have an opportunity to do, dark areas that we have an opportunity to shine in, if we wait for the excuse of, well, I just can't do that, we'll never do it. She goes on to say, the only way that I can do it is not just because of the fear of jail, (laughs) but also because I know a Savior. Because of what He's done in my life, I'm free now for the first time to do things I never would have been able to do on my own. He provides the strength. And yes, it's hard. It is suffering that I've signed up for. I'm not saying we should all go be foster parents but maybe some of us should, or whatever it is. 
Maybe some of us should go to, to, to places like uh, neighborhoods in Macon that, that, that have works that are going on that are, are an opportunity to, to be light and to get involved in people's lives that are maybe outwardly much more messy than our own. No, we can't do it on our own. We don't, we don't know what we have to offer, but we don't have to do it on our own. That's the point. We do it in and through the strength of Jesus. The other thing he says that it's the light of the world is like a city on a hill. And the picture of a city is not just one single light. It's a bunch of lights together on a hill that gives light to the whole surrounding countryside. And so the idea is that we're not supposed to do it on our own. But we're to join together with like-minded believers to work towards a cause like that to see the darkness pushed back. And the last thing is kind of what comes out of that. He says that in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Somebody said good deeds lead to the creation of goodwill, and that goodwill lays the groundwork for the good news to be shared. Um, I remember finding out as a kid for the first time that the moon had no light of its own. And it didn't make any sense. I was like, of course it does. It's dark outside. I'm looking up, and the moon is just glowing. Of course it has light. And then somebody trying to explain to me, no, actually, the moon only has light because the sun is shining on it, and it's reflecting back, and you, and you can see the reflection of the sun on the moon. And my little mind trying to get my head around that. But if you've ever, as we used to do on Easter in a little country community I grew up in, if you ever go to sunrise service, and you're up, as the sun is, is rising over here, and yet you can still see the moon glowing over here, it's, it's the picture that, that Jesus is painting here of, hey, you know where the light's coming from. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower, a disciple, sometimes the only light that people who don't know me have for the time being is to see you reflecting my light, being the moon, reflecting my light. And as they see you, at some point along the way, whether through you sharing the good news or them asking questions or whatever it might be, they start to realize the same thing that you realized long ago. Oh, that's why you're the way you are. Not because of anything in you, but because of the glory that you're reflecting, because of Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. They'll see your good works, and they'll give glory not to you, but to the Father who's in heaven what our lives are supposed to be like as disciples as people see our lives when they ask those questions we say no this is not me believe me if you see any light at all it's because jesus is at work in my life so why the delay we may ask or the disciples may ask why jesus why do you have to come once and then wait so long to come again well he's saying hey first of all i'm working on you you're going to undergo persecution and it's going to stretch you and make you uh, see things and do things that you never thought possible. And as I'm preparing you for that eternal weight of glory that's coming. So he's working on us, but also he's working through us to see people redeemed and to see creation restored all for his glory, all so that he can get glory. So the plea to you today from the word of God is if you're one of those who believed the message of if you come to know Jesus, you'll live the abundant life. But you didn't 
fill in the rest of that story or have anybody fill in the rest of that story for you is the only way you have an abundant life is through Jesus. And that abundant life may not be easy, but the point of it is Jesus is there with you through it. Then maybe that's the step you need to take today before you leave is to talk to me or somebody else and say, hey, I, I think I signed up for this Christian thing. I've just been trying to do it because I thought it was going to make my life better. And you're telling me I need, I need to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus like you described him. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or maybe you're, you're saying, hey, I, like you mentioned in Philippians, I've believed, but I don't know if I've ever followed. I don't know if I've ever been a, a disciple that signs up to suffer and to undergo the things that you're talking about. And I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like, what it looks like to be moved from a, just a believer to a, a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus describes here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, this is the description of a disciple. Hold up your life. And, and, and look at it. See if it, if, it, if it fits, if this is what's going on in you, knowing that Jesus himself is the, is the one who works it in you. It's not a, a list to measure yourself up against and say, I've got to do these things in order to get acceptance from God. No, it's a list to say, hey, if God is at work in you, then these are things that you're going to start to see more and more displayed in your life. This is the description of life in a kingdom. Let's pray that he would continue to reorient our heads and our hearts and our lives to look more like what we've been uh, designed and saved to look like. God, thank you so much that you don't leave us to wonder what it looks like to live life in your kingdom, but you give us a clear description in your word and, and especially in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount. God, make us more and more people who display the Beatitudes, who are poor in spirit and hate sin and are meek and pursuing, hungering for, for righteousness. And that out of that, you make us merciful and, and pure in heart and single-minded and peacemakers. And God, as we see those things developed in our life, as you work that in us, God, we pray that we would be the kind of salt and light that you've called us to, that you would pre receive praise and glory because of it, and that we would indeed even sign up for persecution and suffering for righteousness sake um, and that you would use that to work in us to change us and also to work through us to reach people for you would you do that in jesus name amen